Will you turn in your Bibles to Psalm number 2? And you'll need a Bible. So the guys are going to make their way to the back. They have a stack of Bibles. If you get their attention, they'll get one to you. And you can keep that Bible as our gift to you. Because every Lord's Day, we look at God's Word together. So bring that back with you each Sunday. Psalm number 2. The late pastor of the historic 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, James Montgomery Boyce, who managed to overcome some of his Presbyterianism and was a premillennialist to the end, and probably a, a dispensational premillennialist to the end, as he explicitly ex espoused that position in his early writings and he never disavowed it. And I say all of that to say, really, he was a, a Presbyterian, but a good one, is what I'm saying. And he said this, the history of man is essentially the history of war. One of the earliest of all historical records, a Sumerian bas-relief from Babylon around 3000 BC shows soldiers fighting in close order, wearing helmets and carrying shields. There have been almost non-stop wars ever since. And then he quoted this little limerick. God's plan made a hopeful beginning but man spoiled his chances by sinning. We trust that the story will end in God's glory, but at present, the other side's winning. It does often seem as though the other side is winning, doesn't it? I, of course, do not know when the terminal generation will be born and whether it's alive even now, but I do know that each generation thinks theirs is the last or at least very close to it. Just in the relatively short time of our own country, events have moved people to believe that they were living in the final days. The 19th century was a, a hotbed of anticipation based on false teaching that there were signs and very clear signs that the end was near. One of those false teachers was William Miller. He calculated that October 22nd of 1844 would be the return of Christ. That was based on the mention of 2,300 days in the Old Testament book of Daniel. He converted those 2,300 days to years, and then he added them to the year 457 B.C. when the Persian king Artaxerxes declared that Israel could be rebuilt after her exile in Babylon. And if you add 2,300 years to 457, you get, Miller said, about 1843. He ultimately concluded that October 22, 1844 would be the day Christ returned, a day known in history as the Great Disappointment. One Millerite who was sure Christ would return that day wrote, I waited all Tuesday, that's October 22nd, and dear Jesus did not come. I waited all the forenoon of Wednesday and was well in body as I ever was. But after 12 o'clock, I began to feel faint, and before dark, I needed someone to help me up to my chamber as my natural strength was leaving me very fast, and I lay prostrate for two days without any pain, sick with disappointment. During and after the world wars of the last century, there were many candidates for who the Antichrist might be. Stalin, Hitler, Mussolini, all of them wrong, of course. And then in our own lifetimes, for many of us, the likes of Edgar Wiesenant wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why Christ Will Return in 1988. Jack Van Impey predicted Christ's return in 1976. And Harold Camping 
predicted May 21 of 2011, and he purchased billboards around the country to advertise it. In the meantime, in the last few years, I've had people ask me about John Hagee's blood moon stuff that was supposed to begin the end times in 2015, and on it goes. So a couple of things about that. One, please don't ask me what I think about the next guy who you watch on TV or stumble upon on the internet who's predicting the end. I don't really have time for such nonsense, and you should stay away from it yourself as well. And the second is related to the first. When Wiesenant wrote his 88 Reasons book, I wanted to write a response called, One Reason You Should Not Buy 88 Reasons. <laughs> and my One Reason book would have been free and would have only one page. And it would have said what Jesus said. About that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, I will add in His humanity, but only the Father. Today, as we continue our study in the book of Psalms, begun two weeks ago, we're going to see that we need not fret, friends, ever, even in an election year, because God laughs at what the world is trying to do. As you heard Pastor Larry read a bit earlier in our service, and the Lord has determined when and how He, the Lord, is going to fix it. So let's bow now and ask the Lord to help us as we look at Psalm number 2. Father, we thank You that we are here. Thank You for giving us the book of Psalms. And thank You in it for unfolding part, portions of what You are doing in Your world, and particularly through whom You are doing it, through Your anointed one, Your Messiah, and the people that He has called to Himself. And so help me and help us to remember that in trying and uncertain times so that we can glorify and serve you as you called us to do. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Now there is no, if you look at Psalms number 1 and 2, and look at the top of each of those, you'll notice there is no what's called a superscription above either one of those. If you look at Psalm number 3, there is. Psalm number 3, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, is where the actual body of the book of Psalms begins. And it says, above Psalm number 3, a Psalm of David, as does Psalm number 4, number 5, number 6, and so on, for about half of the 150 Psalms. But we know that David wrote Psalm 2 in part because the New Testament says so when it quotes the first two verses of Psalm 2, attributing them to King David. In Acts chapter 4, it says, You, sovereign Lord, spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And as we've seen, Psalms 1 and 2 serve as an introduction to the entire Psalter. And so it stands to reason that those also would have been written by David, since the Psalms that immediately follow were, and Psalm number 2, we're explicitly told, was. And there is a very, very close grammatical and thematic connection between these first two psalms. Psalm 1 begins with the word blessed, and Psalm 2 ends with that very same word, forming, as I said the other day, an inclusio. Psalm 1 ends with a warning. Psalm 2 begins with a warning. In Psalm 1, the righteous man 
we're told meditates on God's law in verse 2. In Psalm 2, the wicked also meditate, but they don't meditate on God's law. Instead, they plot, verse 2 of Psalm 2, and that's the same Hebrew word as meditate in the previous psalm. In Psalm 1, the theme is the contrast between the righteous and the wicked person. In Psalm 2, as we'll see, the theme is the contrast between the rebellion of wicked rulers and nations and the rule of God's righteous Messiah. Now, I mentioned in the introductory message to this series two weeks ago that the book of Psalms lays out the biblical worldview that consists of creation, fall, and redemption. We'll see all of that in Psalm 2, and and all of the biblical worldview is designed to highlight God's rule in His world. Creation, fall, and redemption are all designed to highlight God's rule in His his world. We sometimes think that God's purpose for His world is redemption, to save people, to create a people of His very own. And to be sure, that's one very, very major objective that the Bible speaks of and that God is carrying out and that we proclaim to see people come to Him in salvation. But please hear this. Salvation is not the chief end of God's work in His world, believe it or not. It is His glory. And that is seen in people who indeed bear His image and so, yes, must be saved, must be redeemed in order to have that broken image restored. Those people who bear His image rule then, though, on His behalf. And so the Bible, while the Bible offers us both a history of redemption and a history of God's rule, it's only His rule that comprehends the totality of what God is doing. Consider this. There was a time in human history when there was no sin, and therefore no redemption was needed. And there will be a time in the future when there will be no sin. But before and after sin, there was ruling on God's behalf. And that is what King Jesus will do. And the Bible teaches we will reign with Him. And that's why I say in your outline that you should have received when you came in this morning. I talk about the drama of God's rule. And I use that word on purpose for the reason that I gave. And it plays out in four scenes. We're going to see those scenes in in just a moment. But I want you to note that that word. It's the drama of God's rule. One commentator helpfully says, this psalm number two is structured as a dramatic presentation in four acts. In act number one, it's verses one through three, and David raises the question about the chaos in the world, and the kings and the rulers come forth in a chorus to say their lines in act number one in verse three. Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. And then Act 2 is verses 4 through 6. And God calmly sits upon His throne in heaven, and He speaks this line against the rulers in verse 6. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Act 3 is verses 7 through 9. And God's anointed one speaks in verse 7 and reveals God's predetermined plan for dealing with humanity's rebellion. Verse 7, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. And then goes on to say that He, God's anointed, has been given the nations as a possession and He will judge them severely. And then finally in Act 4, verses 10 
through 12, the psalmist speaks out again, giving a closing appeal to come to the Lord in light of those previous three acts. So in your outline, scene number one in verses one through three is human rebellion requires this drama. Verse 1, why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? Now, against whom are they conspiring and plotting? I ask because on the one hand, this is written by David about a thousand years before Jesus came. And yet, Psalm number 2 is the most often quoted psalm in the New Testament, and it's applied to Jesus there instead of David. We've already seen Psalm 2 quoted in Acts chapter 4. Again, you, sovereign Lord, spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant David, our our father David. Why do the nations rage? The peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. But then the next verse applies that quote from our psalm, Psalm number 2, to Jesus. It says, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to, notice, conspire. Against whom? Your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, the anointed one of Psalm number 2. So how can it be both? How can this psalm be about David and Jesus at the same time? In fact, how can it be both in other what are called messianic psalms, psalms as we will see in the next few weeks that speak of the future Messiah, but through the life primarily of David. And so they speak of things going on in the life of David, but which also point to a later time and another king who we now know to be Jesus. Well, it's because David understood when he wrote that what was happening to him was part of a much larger drama that was about more than him. He knew that there would be one coming after him in his line, one of his descendants, who would be the ultimate ruler. So that what took place in David's life was pointing to what would take place in Jesus' life. And so I take you back to, before David wrote, the Psalms to what we call the Davidic covenant. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, here's what the Lord said. The Lord himself will establish a house for you, David. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. And then he goes on to describe, if you go to that passage, describe Solomon and then others that are going to follow, but ends it with, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And so the life of David and his successors points to the one to come. And they will experience many of the same things because now, hear this, the rebellion is not ultimately against David or ultimately against any human ruler or really, ultimately, against any human at all, for that matter, but rather against God. Jesus said, if the world hates you, keep in mind, it hated me first. 
I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. The reason they hate David, the reason they hate David's successors, the reason the world hates those who belong to God is because it starts with an antipathy, a hatred toward God. Verse 1 says, why do they do this? It's a rhetorical question that implies, how dare they do this? The Expositor's Bible commentary says, King David expressed astonishment that the rulers of the earth even tried to counsel together against God. This same idea, why do the rulers of the earth conspire, the same idea can be expressed, why do the nations bother? At the very outset, this psalm makes it clear that the nation's attempt is in vain. And why is it in vain? Because it's against God. And David knows the promise that God has given that his line will survive and his kingdom will last forever under the rule of his descendant, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. Verse 2 says, The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against His anointed. Now, most of you have a New International Version in in front of you. That's the Bibles that we were distributing earlier. And they have a convention in, uh, in the Old Testament to distinguish between two different Hebrew words for God. There's a Hebrew word for God, Adonai. And when that Hebrew word is Adonai and they translate it Lord, they do it capital L, small o, small r, small d, to let you know it's Adonai. When all four of the letters in Lord are capitalized as they are here, then it's a translation of Yahweh, the personal name of God. And so they band together against Yahweh, the personal name of God that He gives to His people, and against Yahweh's anointed. His anointed is the Mashiach, the Messiah in Hebrew. And in Greek, in your New Testament, the equivalent of Mashiach is Christos or Christ. And so we refer to Jesus Christ. Christ is not His last name and Jesus' first name. Jesus is His name, which means He will save His people from their sins. Christ is His title. Jesus is the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah. And so what the world does to David in his life and what it does to his successors in their lives and what the world does to you in your life, if indeed you're living for Him and representing Him accurately, then all of that is ultimately done against the Anointed One, Christ. So although the passage has to do with kings like David and later Solomon and others and finally Jesus, and it speaks of the rulers of the nations, please understand that what happens at the macro level, at those high levels of nations and kings and rulers, that's but a reflection of what occurs all the time at the micro level. And it will ultimately be seen at the top at a point in the future in the most stark and egregious ways. In your New Testament, there is predicted 
the coming of one who the prophet Daniel spoke of in the first part of your Bible. And the Apostle Paul spoke of the coming of this one in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, saying the day of the Lord will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So the Bible is saying that's where it's going. And then the anointed one is going to return and do what we'll see in a bit. So they say, verse 3, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. When it says their, plural, their chains, their shackles, Yahweh and His anointed one. Let's break those off. They will not tell us what to do or how to do it. The macro aggressions that have occurred and will come are built on millions of microaggressions against the Creator. And Satan is behind this rebellion as he has been from the beginning and will continue to use people, both small and great, to do his bidding until he is finally defeated by the one who's had his number from before the world began. One commentator summarized it this way, all people have followed Satan in his rebellion against God. When Adam and Eve succumbed to Satan's temptation and disobeyed God, the human race fell into sin and thus came under God's judgment. This rebellion took on an organized form at the Tower of Babel when proud men came together and proposed to build a tower into heaven to make a name for themselves, the Bible says. The Lord confused their languages and scattered them, which was the, the beginning of the nations. The pride of those at Babel who sought to make a name for themselves was diluted by dividing among the various nations of the earth. But Satan works through the pride of world rulers to weaken the nations through conflict and keep them from submitting to God. As Bible prophecy shows, in the end times, the nations will come together under a single world ruler in defiance of the Lord and His anointed. Satan is the main force behind this world ruler, the Antichrist. The drama of God's rule plays out in four scenes. First, Human rebellion requires these various acts and scenes. And the second of which is God's reaction guarantees it. A journalist friend of mine whose father was a pastor in Brighton for many years, he's with the Lord now, said that his dad used to remind him and his congregation in times of unrest and volatility, quote, God is not biting his fingernails. My friend's pastor dad could rightly say that because of what verse 4 says. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. God's people, believe it or not, can laugh in the face of danger. That God, through Luke, inserted into the book of Acts the Rhoda incident. You all remember that from Acts chapter 12? We saw it many months ago in our series in the book of Acts. It's where Peter had been imprisoned and the Christians had gathered 
in a house to pray for his release. He showed up at the door. She answered. Rhoda answers. When she saw him, she was so excited, she ran back inside to tell the others, leaving him at the door. And then the people who were praying for his release said to her, in effect, it can't be him. He's in prison. That's why we're here praying for his release. Oh, wait. Maybe God answered our prayer. I bring that up because here's in the midst of danger, imprisonment, ultimately martyrdom for many of the early Christians. God has Luke insert a note of humor because it's all going to be all right. Thanks be to God. He who sits enthroned, he's enthroned. And he laughs. And so his people can laugh even in the midst of difficulty. It's why Scripture can say of the diligent woman in Proverbs 31, she can laugh at the days to come. You can laugh because God does. You see, brothers and sisters, desperation is not a good look for Christians. Why is that? Because it says we don't believe God is on the throne laughing at the foolishness of sinful people. And why can he laugh? Because he's got this. Because he's got them. Because he's got this moment. Because he's got this election. He's got that politician. He's got that child of mine. He's got that neighbor, he's got that diagnosis, that boss, that pastor, that spouse, that bill, that decision. He's got every piece of it. He knows it. He's told us. He's demonstrated to us over and over and over. I've got this. And those who know that and believe that can laugh as he does. And so Daniel said, praising the God of heaven, said, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons, and he deposes kings, and he raises up others. And this God had to teach the king of Babylon that lesson. Nebuchadnezzar, you all remember that? Babylon, the first world empire. But Daniel said to him, on behalf of the Lord, you, Nebuchadnezzar, will acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. One preacher said, Napoleon Bonaparte, when intoxicated with success at the height of his power, is reported to have said, I make circumstances. And God laughed. So really? And God let him go on for a while. And then, verse 5, rebuked him in his anger and terrified him in his wrath. And Napoleon came to nothing. So friends, did you know that God is not worried about man's rebellion against him? 
He isn't sitting on the edge of heaven fretting and saying, oh, what am I going to do? He lets man go on for a while in his rebellion, and then his anger and judgment will come, and man's proud plans will come to nothing because God has determined to establish His kingdom on earth. So verse 6 says, and ends the second scene, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And how can we be sure that's going to happen? Because of what the next act tells us. The drama of God's rule plays out in these four scenes. Human rebellion requires this drama. God's reaction guarantees it, and then it moves to God's ruler establishing it. Verse 7, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. And so this is moved from David to David's descendant, the anointed one, the Messiah, back in time to God's decree and a counsel between God the Father and God the Son. And verse 7 tells us, He said to me, so it's the Lord's decree. You see it's all capital L-O-R-D. It's Yahweh's decree. And this decree is given to the anointed one, the Messiah. And verse 7 says, He, Yahweh, said to me, the Messiah, the anointed one, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Now that phrase from Psalm number 2 is applied to Jesus several times in the New Testament. I'll explain what it means in a moment, but first I want to remind you that we see that kind of counsel between God the Father and God the Son in other passages, going back to eternity past, before the world was created, and God's decrees were set forth. So in Titus chapter 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. God promised that there'll be some people, it's called here the elect, who are going to come to Him. And the question is, to whom were these people promised? In eternity past. Well, I ask you, who was around to receive the promise at that point? That would be God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And here's what the same Apostle Paul says at the beginning of his letter to Timothy, second letter to Timothy. He says, He saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. This grace was given us, notice now, in Christ before the beginning of time. That phrase, the beginning of time, before the beginning of time, exact same phrase that's used in Titus chapter 1. God the Father promised to God the Son a people that He's going to call out of the world and to Himself. And that's why when Jesus walked the earth, He said things like this in John chapter 6, This is the will of Him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all of those that He has given me, but raise them up the last day. So God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The nations conspire, but they conspired long before that. 
for what it was they were going to, to do. And so what does it mean when God the Father said to God the Son, in eternity past, you are my son, today I become your father. And then it was applied to Jesus in the New Testament in his earthly ministry. It means that God the Father sent God the Son on a mission to earth that he was guaranteed to complete and was declared openly as the man he became when he came to earth to be my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That is, Jesus was openly declared to be God's son. He did not become God the son. He's been that from all eternity past. But he was declared openly as his identity as, as, his identity as God the son because he obeyed all the father had assigned. He fulfilled his mission. That's why Romans chapter 1 says this. His son as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David. Through the Spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power. Now notice, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, the NIV, we use the NIV, and it's very helpful, very easy to read, and they usually get it right. Most other translations say here, instead of was appointed some of you may have a translation that says, was declared to be the Son of God in power by the resurrection of the dead. He was declared to be, openly declared. God the Father is openly declaring who He is because of His full obedience in His life, culminating with God the Father raising Him from the dead, signifying that He approved of the totality of Christ's obedience throughout that life. And so verse 8, because that is promised, because that was what was going to happen and did happen, verse 8, ask me, you Messiah anointed one, ask me, Yahweh, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession, and you, verse 9, will break them with a rod of iron, you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Are you a person who worries? Don't raise your hand. Are you anxious about what happens next? I'm here to tell you, dear friend, on the authority of the Word of God, that He's enthroned, that Jesus is enthroned at His right hand, that the Messiah is going to return and He's going to do precisely what Psalm number 2 says. God's got this and everything that leads up to it, including all the stuff of your life. The drama of God's rule plays out in these four scenes. Human rebellion requires it. God's reaction guarantees it. God's ruler establishes it. Lastly, human repentance completes it. That is, if human beings that were made to rule God's world on His behalf are indeed going to do that, then it means they're going to have to turn to Him in repentance. And God gives that opportunity in His mercy. What are the elites and the non-elites to do given that He is God and King? Verse 10, You kings be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate His rule with trembling. 
Kiss the son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. At the end of this majestic psalm, we're given an opportunity to turn to the Redeemer and King. Be wise. Kiss the Son, verse 12. That is, embrace Him rather than hating Him. Embrace Him. Receive Him. And this side of the cross and this side of the obedient life and death and resurrection of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, when you embrace Him, what you receive is the benefit of His absolutely, perfectly obedient life throughout all of His life, every thought, every word, every deed, what you were made to do but failed, what I was made to do but failed, Jesus succeeded in. And when we embrace Him, we receive that. And the covering that His blood on the cross gives us for our sin. And so, we can avoid the destruction spoken of in verse number 12. His wrath was taken by God the Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross on our behalf. So you don't have to pay it yourself. Blessed, at the end of verse 12, are all who take refuge, take safety in Him. If you come to the Lord Jesus Christ and you've embraced Him, you have that safety. Live that way, dear friend. Live like He's on the throne. Live like He's got this. But if you've never embraced the Son, then the warning is for you, but the opportunity, the invitation is for you as well. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, be rescued, be delivered from the penalty, the sure penalty of our sin. He's your refuge. Here's your take-home truth. In Christ, God restores what sin has destroyed both in our individual lives and in His world as a whole. We're going to bow and pray. When we do, I urge you, dear friend, to thank God that He's on the throne. Thank God that He's got this. And if you've never come to the Lord Jesus Christ, that you take the opportunity to do that now, from your heart to God, acknowledging you're a sinner. That if you were one of these kings, you'd be doing that. So would I. Your microaggressions would become macroaggressions. And so, Lord, I'm a sinner, and I need to embrace the Lord Jesus, who alone is the payment for my sin and who lived the life that I was supposed to live. I ask you to apply that forgiveness to me. Give me the righteousness that belongs to Jesus, and I give you my life in return. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you again for gathering us and we thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us this blessed psalm. And we thank you for how it so clearly lays out what has happened with humanity, what you have intended in your world, what you have decreed from eternity past, and it will happen as you have designed. And so, Lord, we thank you that the Messiah came, did the work that was assigned to him perfectly, 
is now at your right hand, and your word tells us he is going to return, and he is going to receive his people to himself, and he is going to establish his kingdom, and we will have the blessing of reigning with him. Lord, we will reign in a perfect, sinless kingdom because you will destroy all of those who fail to kiss the Son and embrace Him. And so I ask you to work in the hearts of any who came into this room today without the refuge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that they will enter that rest and that deliverance and that protection right now and we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.